This is T. Earl Grey Hart, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. Kobayashi Maru. Hello and welcome to episode 93, Mark 2, please don't ask, of T.L. Grey Hot, an unofficial Star Trek fan podcast from the Other Side Podcast Network. My name is Dave and I am joined this time by someone who has absolutely no idea what to put in the co-host introduction, even though it was to introduce himself. It's my good friend Yannick. Hi Yannick, how are you? Hi, I am fine. I am super excited to be back. It's to been have a while, new Star it? Trek to review. Yeah. And it, it's yeah, yeah. it's been a been a bit of a long time since we last did one of these. Yes. I, uh, I live worked, one, yeah. I worked it out. Do you want to know? Yeah. Three months and two weeks. Oh jeez. Since we recorded <laughs> an episode of a non live series. But the last live series we did, well, live, I mean, current series we did, it was uh, even longer than that. Oh, good grief, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it was season three of Discovery, yes. was it not? Yes. It was. That was January, I think, with that finished. Yeah, so, something like that, yeah. Well, hopefully we'll remember how to get back into the swing of this. Hopefully, Yes. Well, we'll soon find out, won't we? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> because, as Yannick quite rightly pointed out, we are going to be reviewing uh, Season 4, Episode 1 of Star Trek Discovery, Kobayashi Maru. What Indeed. an episode. Yes. 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 It had its moments, but it also had its moments. Yeah. <laughs> I think we agreed when we finished watching it, we... I had a quick exchange on Telegram, and we agreed on the Well, on we, the we whole both said exactly episode. the same thing at the same time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is probably a good thing. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Anyway, see. Um, unless you've got anything else to mention? Nope. Then we shall crack on with our review of Kobayashi Maru. So then, in the teaser, which was more of an act than a teaser um, by its length... Mm-hmm. The USS Discovery arrives via spore drive at Alshane 4. Cleveland Booker's ship exits the shuttleway and heads for the planet's surface, passing a network of derelict satellites in orbit. Standing on one of the many floating segments of the planet's surface, Captain Michael Burnham, accompanied by Booker, greets Emperor Li Yu and other Alshane as the first visitors to Alshane 4 since the burn. Burnham conveys the Federation's request to reopen relations and offers a gift of dilithium. However, Li Yu is hostile to her offering, suggesting that the Federation sought to take advantage of their advanced technologies. Burnham admits that Alshane IV's relationship with the Federation was strained in the decades prior to the burn, but Li Yu remains sceptical. Yeah, I guess I can understand. I mean... uh... They suddenly reappear. They're probably not going to get them, you know, with their arms open. Oh, come. No, but 
the the weird thing about it is that the Federation didn't have a great reputation to non-members of the Federation 900 years ago. Yeah. And yet, for some reason, that reputation's carried forward to the 30, what is 32nd century, 33rd century? Um, That's, yeah. 32nd. So, yeah, nothing's changed. Nope. <laughs> Another Alshane informs Li Yu that scans of Booker's ship found a third undisclosed life form. Grudge, Booker reveals. Their attempts to explain Grudge's status as a pet led to a misunderstanding with the Alshane about whether the Federation sought to treat their species as pets. Yeah, they, they did a pretty poor job at explaining who Grudge was. Well, <laughs> they didn't exactly help by what they said next, but yes, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, right from the outset, it seemed to me as though the Alshane were kind of spoiling for a fight. They were yeah. going to try and pick yeah. a hole in everything they'd said, take things the wrong way. Um, even to the point, I don't think it's mentioned in the review. Um, no, it's not. But Burnham used the phrase, no strings attached, mm-hmm. in in the offer of, um, of the dilithium. Yeah. Of the offer of the dilithium. And yet, they even misunderstood. They they knew what no strings attached meant, but for some reason they chose to take it as a trap, as the opposite of what it actually what it actually meant. <laughs> yeah, don't understand. Seeking to explain their affection for Grudge, Burnham and Booker call her a queen, but this only enrages the Alshane, who believe them to be holding a monarch captive. I had to laugh at the use of the word monarch and then what happened yeah. immediately after that with the butterflies because a monarch is a butterfly. Ah. Yes. Yes, true. I didn't oh, I didn't think about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A butterfly-like species begins coalescing behind them, acting in concert as giant wings for the Alshane. Burnham urges Booker to do his empathy thing, but the Alshane pull out weapons and demand to be taken to their ship to free Grudge. Yeah, I was surprised. I, I didn't expect uh, weapons. They didn't look like a, uh, a... You know, they didn't have heavy armor or stuff like that. No. And so, But then again, the Federation just had their uniforms and they have weapons, so... Yeah, now that I think about it, they, didn't they? The, the weapons materialize, something like that. Or yes. did I, I, yes. or did they pull them out of their suits or something? I didn't see. I didn't see them before. So the Alshane take flight and start firing as Burnham and Booker run through the woods. Booker's ship was too large to fit between the trees, so he'd called a smaller craft to collect them, which it does shortly after they jump off a cliff. Always jumping off a cliff. It seems to be a thing with them. Yeah. A parachute and ejection system land Burnham and Booker safely on the ground, but they are still taking fire. Burnham realises the Alshane are having trouble navigating because of the derelict satellites and asks Discovery to help solve the science problem. Yes, because when you're shot at uh, running in a dark forest, 
the thing to do is to solve the a science problem. But not just any science problem. The science no. problem that will actually help them hit you with their weapons. Yes, as Booker rightly mentioned. Right. <laughs> why, why would you want to help them? But to be honest, Burnham's response was pretty spot on, and that is to show trust. However, yeah. it's very difficult to show <laughs> an offer of trust to a species that has a gun in your face. Well, I don't know. You can always walk to them and say, excuse me, I think you're holding that the wrong way. You should point that to me. <laughs> <laughs> At me. <laughs> there you go. You're welcome. Yes. Run. <laughs> Lieutenant Sylvia Tilly. Uh, Lieutenant, notice. Yeah. Commander Paul, Commander Paul Stamets and Enten Adira Tal workshop the issue revealing the satellites were installed to counteract a 300-year-old 14-degree shift in the planet's magnetic poles. On the bridge, Lieutenant Commander Joanne Owushkun and Kayla Detmer explained that the satellites used dilithium to stabilise the power supply and have simply run out of fuel. Burnham orders Discovery to use dots to refuel the array over Booker's objections. <laughs> yeah. As the array repowers, the Alshane begin flying and shooting more skillfully. Burnham and Booker run for yet another cliff and end up standing atop his cloaked ship, which then uncloaks as they beam inside. They beam a supply of dilithium to the nonplussed Alshane and Booker pet scrudge as his ship returns to discovery. Yeah. So, like, you know, well, there you go. <laughs> you didn't catch, up, catch, catch us this time. <laughs> Why didn't they just start shooting at Booker's ship, though? Don't know. I don't know. And also, we know the, those um, those uh, the portable transporters. They have a great range. So why did they wait until the last moment? I don't know. Yeah. See, I I think that was a little bit of showboating. Yeah. Um. The, you know, they were stood there, and the light standing there, almost as if, go on, try it. And then suddenly, yeah. uh -uh, uh -uh, right, uh -uh. we're gone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back on the bridge, communications officer Lieutenant Christopher tells Burnham Liu is hailing. Liu asks why Burnham gave them the dilithium, even after their unpleasant visit. Because we're the Federation... It's what we do, she replies, adding that the Federation is ready to provide further assistance, no strings attached. Their mission concluded, Burnham orders the ship away with her signature line, Let's fly. Yes. Uh, yeah, no. Let's, let's not do that again. <laughs> yeah, she does, though. It's, it's going to be a thing, isn't do you it? Think, do you think she does that? Well, the, the writers uh, kept that because of the internet reaction, you know, the, the, the almost 50-50 split. And they were like, let's, let's put that in there, even though that, that will maybe annoy some, some of those uh, fans. I don't think it matters what the reaction is, as long as there's a reaction. No. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, it's going to be the, the Burnham's thing anyway, so we're going to get used to it. Yes, exactly. And 
it is very apparent that she's incredibly comfortable with that phrase. Oh, because yeah. not, <laughs> not, not like Saru's manifest, where he's like, <laughs> he's really not comfortable with it. Or with no. um, uh, Pike's um, punch it. very, very matter-of-fact, very authoritative punch it. Or um, Picard's make it so. But she's like, she sat, she sat in her chair, she relaxed, she put a smile on her face, and she just said, let's fly. It wasn't even an order. It was a request. Yes, yes. And Almost, it works. Please. It works. I still not comfortable with it, but it does work. Yeah. Okay, let's unpick this teaser a little bit. Like I said uh-huh. at the start, that was, that was Act Zero. That wasn't a teaser. That was Act Zero. Mm-hmm. That was 10 Agreed. minutes long. That was a fifth of the episode. That was crazy. Yeah. Lots of action. Lots of action, but the, some of the visual effects... So there was the scene when Book and Burnham were running towards Book's ship after they brought the magnetic geocompensators back online. It looked Vision. very computer-generated. It probably was, but it looked very but, much so. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah, it, it, it was a bit, bit too obvious for me. Or is it that we're now so used to those things that we can spot them there's a difference between knowing that it's computer generated and it being painfully and awfully obvious that it's computer generated okay I, i'm talking I, I like didn't... i'm talking like terminator 2 level computer graphics yeah, here not not 2020 advanced I see what stuff you mean, yeah so when Burnham and Book arrived, well, when Burnham arrived back on the bridge, did you not think that the whole scene on the Bridge of Discovery was very cutesy? We had lots of shots of people with beaming, smiley faces. If oh, Isn't life just wonderful, darling? It, it looked very contrived, very forced. I didn't notice that. Uh, no. I was might too happy something. to. I was too happy to, you know, be able to watch a, a new episode that I didn't know anything about. So okay, oh. the translation of that is Dave, stop being picky. I I, I hear that. <laughs> no, I hear that. Don't. Okay. That's what you do. <laughs> but and I have got this written in my notes. You can check and see. It actually was a really, really good start to the to the episode to yeah. the season. It was a very good start. Very powerful. Yes. So, as we... Uh, how, this, how can I say uh, As we said for the last episode of the previous season, the Federation is now dilithium-30. Well, they delivered dilithium in less than 30 minutes to different planets. Because that's, that's pretty much what the uh, Discovery does. Apparently. And get anywhere in no time at all. Yeah. Well, there's also this, you know, second first contact thing, but... Yes. Yes. They're pretty much dilithium delivery now. Uh, yes. They, they, they've kind of been reduced to a courier service. <laughs> but, no, I like well, the use of the phrase second first nice. contact. Second first contact, yeah. Yeah. It's good. I like that. Didn't it? Because yeah, it is. I came up with they're, that. they're building stuff again, aren't they? Mm. 
Uh, credit sequence was uh, was good. The, the the animation was was really good. Um, it was really really good to see Blue Del Barrio get a principal credit this season, mm-hmm. rather than as a um, also starring. Uh, and I also noticed that Sonica Martin Green is now a producer of the show. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. I've noticed that yes. with a lot of TV shows that the principal actors have a production role in the show. Most of them now, yes. I think mm. it's part of the standard contract. Right. It's probably a way for them to make more money because they still get their actor uh, pay and then they get the producer pay. Yeah, oh. but the the producer, the director or the executive producer, they're like the big three. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, so on to Act 1. On Kaminar, the Kelpian Council, which includes Ba'ul representatives, meets in a large underwater chamber to discuss the Federation's gift of dilithium. Sukal assures the group that because he has left Theta Zeta, he cannot cause a second burn. Saru then speaks about the five months he spent on Kaminar, marvelling at the growth of his people and imploring them to share their knowledge and experience with other worlds. Yeah. Now, as a motivational speech, that was actually quite something. That That's not yeah. the Saru that we knew from two, three series ago at all. He's he's turned into quite an, an amazing individual character with his confidence built up and... Um, Rather than becoming part of the, he's become more of a leader mm-hmm. of his people. I think, I think his time away from the Federation helped. And I have to admit, I kind of fear that might not return as the same Saru that we knew before. What as his as his rank as, as his position as, on as the captain Starfleet or something? Yeah, yeah. I can I can now see him as um, ambassador. Sorry. Ambassador, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. that. More than captain, sorry, the the Kaminar ambassador. Yeah. Well, Kaminar is now in a position where it can become a significant member of the Federation, yeah. rather than just this planet that sits over there somewhere and keeps themselves to themselves. Mm-hmm. Which kind of brings me on to my next point. When Saru was trying to explain the opportunities that the Kaminarians, Kaminari, whatever you call them, um, have in terms of sharing their experiences and building relationships with other worlds and other galaxies, he started off with a holographic projection of the sun, uh, sorry, of Kaminar, then the sun, then the solar system, then the galaxy, and even spoke about what may lie beyond that galaxy. But Kaminar is still a very isolated society. Would that not have just blown their minds? You know, the truth is out there. You are not alone. They're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, yes, that's true. Um, But they're also, you know, they are aware of, of... the existence of the federation of spaceships of, of all those things so they probably already know about all that it's just that when you see it like he described that 
you then realize that you're just a tiny speck of dust in the in, in the whole universe. So okay, I, I, you know it's it's the thirty something century. Yeah. So I, I bet almost everyone knows about uh, other planets and mm. space travel. Yeah. Well, particularly that right. now that now that Kaminar has clearly evolved in the eight and a half hundred years um between seasons 2 and 3. Th- uh, you know, they they mentioned it earlier on that the um the Kaminar council, the Kelpian council Includes representatives from Baul, Baul, yeah, who were previously their. Well, I don't know whether they were their enemy or their controllers. Well, yeah, which is the better way of putting it. Yeah, they were not in on friendly terms. No. On discovery, Booker prepares to part for Quajan where he is to attend his nephew Leto's IQ Zen ceremony, a coming-of-age rite. Burnham and Discovery are due to attend the reopening of Starfleet Academy, 125 years after it closed. Booker intuits that Burnham is not excited about introducing the new Federation president, Lyra Rillac. Burnham feels that Rillac is using the event to promote herself. Damn politicians. Yes, exactly. Give them a public event, and they will use that to their own agenda. Absolutely. Turn it towards themselves. <laughs> At the ceremony, Burnham notes that just one year prior, Federation headquarters lay behind a cloak, and member worlds numbered just 38. Now the Federation counts 59 members and has largely lowered the cloaking shield. She compliments the cadets on a bright future and introduces Rillac. Rillac acknowledges the contribution of Discovery and her crew to restoring the Federation, though she notes the development of new technologies to lessen dependence on dilithium. She also previews an expansion of scientific exploration for Starfleet. Rillac then reveals the newly constructed Archer space dock, an immense superstructure capable of constructing or servicing multiple ships at once. Nice, I uh, tried to find to... out. Yes, well, yes. I was trying to find out if that was actually the case, whether the space dock was named after Jonathan Archer, but I could not confirm it. I, I couldn't, ah, couldn't find any evidence sure it to is. it. It has to be. How many other archers? Well, be. apart from his dad, maybe. But how many other yeah. archers? Um, One of them. The relevance would would you know would be. No. Absolutely. So I, I, I was kind of <laughs> expecting the president to say something along along the lines like, you know, uh, well, thank you very much for your help, um, Discovery, but... uh, But no, that didn't come. But you're being stood down. (laughs) Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because when she started speaking, I was like, I don't know if I like her. Oh, well, the jury's still out for me. I'm still not sure whether I like her now, even having watched the rest of the episode. Yeah, agreed. Although that probably didn't help. 
I no. I looked into um, her as a as a as a as a as a character. She reminded me of I can't remember his name. I think it was the Final Frontier. He was a Klingon um, captain, but he was quite a junior Klingon captain in the ranks of of, of the Klingon Empire. And his tactical um, officer or, or weapons officer um, looked very similar to Rilak. So I looked to see if there was any relationship between the, the two actors. And I, I didn't find out that answer, but I did find out something else. Rilak, get this, is a human Cardassian Bajoran hybrid. <laughs> wow. <laughs> You wouldn't have seen that 800 years ago. No. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, hu- human in and of itself, that's that, that's bad enough. But a cardassian Bajoran yeah. hybrid. Uh, <laughs> things have changed. <laughs> yeah, things have changed, yes. Yeah. Indeed. And dear listeners, if you were in our chat right now, you would have seen uh, Lainey play a game of Drop. So if you want to drop some parachutes while we record those episodes, we will give you the link to our Twitch channel at the end of this uh, recording. And you can join us, share your thoughts about um, episodes, and also try to uh, make the high score of the week at, at this uh, drop thing. I think you've got the high score of the week at the moment, if, if that counts. I do. I do, but well, we haven't yeah. started streaming by then, so I don't know whether it counts. No, I was testing the thing. Yeah. Afterwards, Admiral Charles Vance shows his wife and daughter the space dock. Lieutenant Commander R. A. Bryce and Christopher discuss the Alshane mission, but Bryce warns Christopher not to get too comfortable aboard Discovery, as his consulting tour on the USS Curry will last just two more days. They join the rest of the Discovery senior staff who are talking to Rilak just as Burnham peels away to approach Tilly, who is standing alone. Tilly hints at mixed feelings about her promotion to lieutenant, but before Burnham can respond, Lieutenant Audrey Willer calls her to an urgent meeting with Vance. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. It had to happen. Yes. The Federation has received a recorded distress call from Commander Nalas from Akosnam. No, and Akosnam, I think, from Deep Space yeah. Repair Beta 6. He reports that two hours prior, for unknown reasons, the station lost reactor control thrusters and that gravitation stability is compromised before the transmission abruptly ended. Vance says subspace relays in the area also went offline, prompting Burnham to hypothesize that a solar flare's electromagnetic pulse may have knocked those systems offline. Quajan is the nearest system, but Vance says there isn't time to wait for another vessel to reach the station via warp, and instead orders Discovery to respond. Rilak asks to come along to see the spore drive in action. Burnham objects, arguing that her presence increases the danger to her crew, but Rilak overrules her. Burnham complains to Vance that Rilak is merely trying to boost her credentials by participating. Vance notes that Rilak does not need Burnham's permission, and notes that connecting with a powerful politician could be a useful tool for Burnham later. He excuses himself to eat dinner with his family. 
Did you yeah. see the smile on his face when he yes. when uh, Burnham mentioned his family? Uh, that was that yes. was actually a gorgeous moment. Yeah, yeah, it was. I thought that is not at all the um, Vance that we saw last uh, season. No, he's he's no longer worried or um, uh, you know very uh, detached from everyone and stuff like that. Now he's it's, it's like. He's like a human being. <laughs> Who would Which have thought you, that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I agree with Burnham. I yeah, think allowing, allowing the president to be on discovery on a mission is foolhardy at best. And protocol shouldn't allow it, which I believe it doesn't. But unless the rules have changed... The captain of a ship has absolute authority on that vessel whilst it is deployed. Now, yes. of course, Rilak is within her rights to remove that authority, but I don't think that she would go down that route. Is she? Does the president of a country has the power to remove that that kind of of uh, I was going to say privileges, but wrongs? Well, if you think about it, if you think about it from, well, you use the word president. It's relevant, United States. Yeah, the president of the United States is the commander of the armed forces. Yeah, I was I was thinking about France, for example. But okay, I don't know if he's yeah, he's the he's the chief of army too. Mm. So I guess he could. Yeah. Okay. But I, I I would see his role as commander of the armed forces as more ceremonial yeah. than <laughs> than actual. Yeah, I guess it would have to go through at least the uh, defense ministry or something, you know, the, right. the Department of Defense in the US. Uh, Someone who actually knows what they're doing. Okay, so that's going to be hard. Yeah, yes. uh, and I agree with uh, with Burnham. She's using she's using that to her advantage again. But mm. I was, you know, with what I said earlier, like I was expecting her to say something weird uh, during the, her speech, uh, something against Burnham and the Discovery crew. And now she wants to go on the ship, and I was like, uh, she wants to 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 I don't know decommission discovery or you know, split the team or demote uh, Burnham or something like that. I really, really thought she had uh, something else in her mind. There is definitely another, another agenda there. Yeah. There's, there's no, no disputing that, mm-hmm. but, but what is it? Is it, is it discovery related? Is it Burnham related? Oh. Maybe mm. she thinks Discovery looks good and she wants it. Maybe, Maybe she would make that um, Federation One. Federation One. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Burnham and Rilak arrive on the bridge as Discovery prepares to depart. Burnham warns Rilak to brace herself, as the jump can be quite disorientating at first. But Rilak insists that she'll be fine, as she used to fly cargo ships with her father. 
quite what the comparison relevance is there, I'm not sure. (laughs) The ship jumps, and Burnham notes that Rilak is unaffected. The perplexed crew finds the station spinning erratically through space, rolling out solar flares as the cause. The station and its crew cannot take such stress much longer, Burnham warns. She's going to blow, Captain. She's going to blow. I've given you all she's got. Give me 20% more. Oh, dear. Oh, um, my when, God. When, when the, the ship jumped, yeah, you're going to say, oh, it's always been there. But when the ship did its spinny thing and then jumped, yeah. there was this kind of noise that went along with it. And I've never noticed that before. No, I don't. I don't even remember hearing that this time. But I'll watch it again, and it just really stood out for me. So either I've missed okay. it every time I've seen it jump, and it's jumped, you know, tens of times. Yeah, I don't know. And I've never I, noticed I, it. I don't remember. So, yeah. So Act Two on Quajon. Booker, Leto, and Kaim walk through a great forest to a massive root. Booker explains that the root system reaches all the way around Quajan, and that a small amount of sap will be mingled with a drop of Booker's blood in a vial that he can wear as a pendant, as his father does. I checked this a number of times. I went through frame by frame, and I couldn't confirm that that was Booker's blood. The little artifact that Kaim gave Booker which I originally thought was a knife, I think was actually a um, a storage vessel from which he pushed out a drop of blood onto Leto's finger and then picked it up and put it into the vial. I don't think Booker cut his finger. But that could be Booker's blood that he gave to Kahim some time ago. But well, I guess it then? would have degraded uh, since then. But. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, maybe. But why would it be Booker's blood, not why not Kaim's blood? No, I'm asking you. No, no. You should know this. Why no. don't you know? I, I'm, uh, <laughs> 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 ah. no, just a weird one. Yeah. But one um, could argue what is why is Booker here? Um, why he's Wait, he is the one to give his blood. Because he's not, he's not Leto's father. No, he's, a, uh, he's Leto, uncle. Leto's uncle. Yeah. But I think that was, that was more of a respect thing between Kaim and, and Booker yeah. than yes. anything else. I guess. Mm. Leto asks why Booker does not wear a pendant, but Kaim responds that they will share that story another day now is this is this part of the story we haven't heard yet where um booker abandoned quajon maybe because we've not heard this story yet have we no right or maybe they realized booker didn't have a pendant and they improved a line just to say okay that that's gonna be addressed later oh now i like that idea that that wasn't scripted yeah. Or maybe it was scripted, but at the last time, you know, at the last minute, when I say, oh, wait a minute. Um, Kahim has a pendant, Leto has a pendant, Booker doesn't. We can't just put a pendant around 
Bukio's snake right now. So let's add something. Mm. But Because it does take those away- picky French and UK guys, they will notice that Bukio doesn't have a pendant. So let's <laughs> suck their well, review. I, I noticed it before Lito asked the question. <laughs> See? But it then asks the same question from earlier in a different way. If mm-hmm. if Booker isn't wearing a pendant of his own, how can he pass the tradition onto somebody else saying, you have this pendant, you never take it off. It's important. It's part of the culture. But I haven't got one. That, that's why it's going to be explained later. Right. Indeed. And that is a, a, a team of writers that are, you know, Hitting their head. Why? Why do we have to invent this story now? <laughs> well, they may not have to. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it. Indeed. Yes. We'll tell you that story later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, double inception. Yes. Leto, Kaim, and Booker chant in the Quajan language, and then Leto runs off to show the vial to his friends. Meanwhile, Booker and Kaim are puzzled by the strange behaviour of a flock of birds. Yeah. It's like rats leaving the sinking ship, isn't it? Indeed. It's, yeah, didn't didn't look good. No, and um, with the... Well, they said it was not Solar Flare that... Um, destroyed the uh, well mm. not destroyed disrupted the uh, what's deep space repair beta seven six two five one mark two um, um but you know it seems like something that would happen in case of a of a uh, i just say that uh, some perturbation in the force mm. yes wrong franchise but <laughs> perturbation Good word. And uh, that didn't did that didn't miss me. I, I I saw what you did there. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I am looking for a new co-host. <laughs> I was expecting that. Mm. <laughs> well, next week you will be. You can co-host with Lenny. I can leave uh, leave you and Lenny hosting this. Not a problem. You can start up the uh, the the new Star Wars uh, review podcast from the other <laughs> side, Podcast Network. Yeah, not a chance. Yeah, well, I would be ghosting that one with you. <clears throat> Aboard Discovery, Tilly reports that the station is moving at 720 kilometers per second with a radial velocity of 22 degrees per second. Mm-mm. The shields must- are down. Hmm? They must all be dead inside at 22 degrees per second. You'd think that kind of I mean, rotation. That's, that's what, 360 divided by 22, uh, roughly 18, well, eight, 18. 18 would be 20 rotation, yeah. uh, 20 seconds per rotation. So it's slightly faster than that. Yeah. 20 degrees per second. So that's, yeah. That's right, yeah. So 18. 18 rotations per second. No. No, 16. 16. 16. 16. 16 oh, okay. rotations per... Um, 16, 16 seconds, seconds per, ro- per 16 rotation. Sixteen seconds per rotation, yeah. Blimey, 16 seconds per 
16 rotations per second. That, that, <laughs> that's a spin dry. Yeah. And seven, well, the 720 kilometers per second, that doesn't really count if it doesn't accelerate. So that's okay. But 22 degrees per second, that's uh, one heck of a artificial gravity. Yes. Urgh. The station's and shields will... are down. Hmm? No, go ahead. What? Oh. <laughs> oh. The station's shields are down and the hull is slightly magnetised and Christopher reports that he cannot raise Nalas. Burnham reviews the distress call and notices in the starfield behind Nalas a distortion. Tilly reports that it's extreme lensing, a gravitational distortion that must have hit the station and relay. However, Reese is unable to find anything that could create such a large distortion. Discovery finally makes contact with Nalas, who reports that the ten crew are confined to the main control room as life support elsewhere has failed and that many other systems are also failing. Nalas says they can fix the thrusters to stop their spin, but asks for assistance, replacing the Q-nodes with programmable matter. Burnham orders Tilly and Tal to beam over once Detmer is able to match the station's erratic course and spin. Tal arrives on the bridge to wait, and discusses their nervousness at their first mission with their projection of Grey Tal. With Discovery in synchronous orbit, Tilly and Tal beam over. I, I love the exchange between uh, Owo and Detmer, whatever, you know, one was, uh, well, I, I can do that if you can do that. What do you mean I can do that? Of course well, I can yeah. do that. What do you mean if? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, and then tal- uh, um, uh, Adira's uh, throwaway comment, um, I'm, I'm, I can't remember exactly what it was she said, but she said something along the lines of, uh, I'm here, I'm ready, I've got everything I need, I'm now ready to stop talking. <laughs> yes, yes. That was great, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder how you maintain a starship in synchronous... What? Don't even go there. <laughs> yes, because you need to rotate at 22 degrees per second and move at 720, what, kilometers per second? Kilometers per second. A, yeah. But no, and you're not, because you're, you're moving at 720 kilometers per, kilometers per second in a linear fashion yeah but then so actually need the speed the speed rotate. you have to travel at to rotate uh-huh. and move at 720 kilometers a second yeah. in a linear fashion is going to be i don't know four five six seven times that speed it just doesn't How? make sense i suppose it's as believable as that multi-jump thing that um Lorca constructed in order to map the thingy in, in in season one yeah it's, it's about as believable yeah i guess i maybe we have a little bit uh, harder time this time because we actually realize what that you know uh, Im- implies like rotation and translation and keeping mm. the ship oriented uh, parallel to the, to the station whether you know multi-jump thingies that they can do that how much? How many times they want? We still don't know how, if you know how how plausible it is or not, because we don't have any reference frame. No. 
No, I've got something else to mention about that a little bit later on. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar, uh, very similar question. Tilly and Tal are surprised to find the station crew working on the ceiling due to gravity issues. Just as Tal is about to start work on the primary unit, Nalas jumps in and insists that they don't touch that unit, as he has full responsibility for the safety of the station and its crew. He asks them instead to begin working on one of the secondary processing units while he works on the first in an effort to activate thrusters and stop the station's spin. After some time, they repair the thrusters and the station is able to slow its tumble. Tilly reports they need another 45 minutes to restore life support and sensors. Wouldn't you have moved Discovery out of the way first? Yeah. <laughs> if, you're, but- if you're matching speed and orientation with something that's basically careering out of control and you're about to, to change its course... Discovery was very close. Yeah. At any moment, it could have um, spun in the opposite direction. Discovery could have collided with it. That could have been catastrophic. Yeah. Also, how does it help to be in synchronous orbit of a spinning space station to beam people there? Especially since they have that fancy new transporter that are almost instant news. Instant? Instant and... Well, instantaneous, just, yeah. At the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so probably you could, uh, you know, have, you know, uh, what, what did we say? Uh, 30 seconds per rotation? So you have plenty of time to get ready, and when the station is in the right uh, orientation, beam someone there, and there you go. Well, a beam is just a data stream, isn't it? Yeah. Which has no orientation. So as long as... no you have not necessarily line of sight, but as long as you have contact between the, the origin and the target, it doesn't matter which way up you are. No. <laughs> so, guess it was for the show. Uh, probably. Suddenly, Reese detects incoming debris before it rocks Discovery and the station. Awashikun reports that the debris is frozen methane, Space cow farts? I don't know. She would be pulled in by the gravitational distortion, and Burnham orders Discovery's shields extended around the station, although that will cause a major power drain. <laughs> no, really? Yes. The numerous large hits mean the shields will last just 15 minutes at most, so Burnham orders Tilly, Tal, and the station crew to beam back to Discovery. Unfortunately, that option is unavailable due to damage to the transporter's Heisenberg compensators that will take too long to repair. Yeah, I know. I damaged my Heisenberg compensators the other day and it took ages to repair. Mm. Yeah. I actually looked that up to work out what it was and I I gave up. Yeah. I bought a new one. Is what, sorry? I bought one on eBay. You've ordered a Heisenberg Heisenberg compensator. Yeah. I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with it, so I bought a new one. Just replaced it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Amazon really does sell everything. They do? Yeah. Next day delivery in the whole solar system. <laughs> nice. On the station, the crew cannot get to the shuttle bay, and so they are forced to try using the escape vessel. 
Nalas points out that the escape vessel is only designed for a single one-way trip. <laughs> Tal offers... Yeah. Yeah. More about that. Tal offers to reprogram it so that it can return. However, debris outside the station is preventing the escape vessel from leaving. Nalas suggests climbing to another deck, although Tilly points out that there is no life support there. The dot drones would take too long to remove the debris, but Detmer suggests piloting a worker bee to clear the debris. Burnham decides to pilot it herself, leaving the ship to Reese, but Rillac questions her decision to leave the ship during an emergency. Burnham says that she is the most experienced EV pilot and thus the safest and most logical choice, and departs. It hurts, but I agree with the president. I do, but it's a bit rich for, for, for her to question Burnham's violation of protocol when she's True. just done it herself. True. Agreed with that too, but... I mean, the captain going on a no-way mission, that was Kirk's time. But Yes, and they, they stopped doing that. Yeah. They stopped doing reasons. it in Next Gen, yes. Because the captain was falling in love with too many women, so... That was <laughs> proper work. Very I good. don't think that's the official reason. Really? I don't think that's that's not in the Star Trek um, uh, regulations. Uh, Star, Star, Star Trek regulations. regulations. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Burnham as a hero complex, says Lenny. True. She wants to oh, save abs- the whole world. and Well, the world, the galaxy. Yeah. Herself, yes. Yes, indeed. 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 So then, Act 3. 3. Yeah, so put a post-it on that non-returnable shuttle bay or whatever it is. Not shuttle bay. Oh, there there is a... um, Yes, I've written a paragraph on that. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Yes. Isn't it put a pin in it? Rather than put a post-it note on it. I've not heard that before. I don't know. <laughs> hang on, hang on. Yeah. You could do post-it both, note. no? Can't you? Post-it note. There you go. Put a post-it note over Yannick's face. Right, there we go. Not for the first time. <laughs> That's the last one. <laughs> yes. In the empty council... Did I say it was Act 3? I did, didn't I? Oh, we're, now we're on Act 3. Oh, we are. We are. In the empty council chambers on Kaminar, Sukal finds a pensive Saru thinking about discovery. Sukal thanks Saru for his guidance and friendship, but says that he's began to fit in on Kaminar and urges Saru to return to the Federation. That was very nice, uh, very nice talk. I don't know, it, it, did it end there or is, the, the, do they come back to that? I don't remember the... Uh the uh, order of things, but um, yeah, what, what uh, just Sukal scanned ahead. said to... I don't to... think it's mentioned again. Okay, so when what Sukal said to Saru was really, really nice. Like, you know, if you're staying for me, then don't. I'm, I'm good. I have friends. Yeah. I have family. You can now go back to what you want to do and not what you think you have to do. No, exactly. And he could, Sukal could obviously see that that's where Saru's thoughts were. Mm-hmm. And Sukal changed from last time we saw him. Yeah. Now, you know, 
it's no longer a childlike uh, person. He's now grown up. Do we know how much time has passed since five the end months, of I think season three? Earlier. So five months. Yeah. Okay. It might have said that as a, on the caption. It was, there was a caption, wasn't there? Um, well, it five months uh, later, Saru said that. that oh, right. Oh, no, he, you're, you're right, he did. Earlier on. Yes. As Burnham approaches the station to clear the debris, Nalas expresses frustration with the delay. Burnham clears one of the three pieces of debris before the worker bee is destroyed by the impact of the methane ice. Burnham is sent hurtling before her environmental suit safely ensconces her and she flies back to finish the repairs. Nalas panics, and when Tilly tries to stop him from taking his crew on a suicide mission, he pulls a weapon on her. Over comms, Nilak asks Nalas to give Burnham a few more minutes to clear the debris, expressing confidence in her. She calms Nalas by describing scenes from his homeworld, including the fissure of Jurat. Nalas relents just as Burnham finishes. The vessel cannot take everyone in one trip, so Nalas, Tilly and Tal remain behind as the others travel to Discovery, including Burnham clinging to the outer hull. <laughs> that yeah. was good. En route, she directly contacts Rilak to ask her whether the description of the Fisher of Jurat was based on reading Nalas' file or an actual experience. Because she couldn't just wait to be back on Discovery to ask that. She had No, exactly. And of course, she's asking that question in an open bridge. Yes. Even though she said, open a channel to the president. Mm. But unless they have invisible earpieces or something. Yeah, no, absolutely. But anyway. But it's, I, f I found it interesting that Rilak went there directly. Because of what yeah. Burnham asked. See, if you if you'd done that to somebody and referenced something that was that was personal to them in order to try and snap them out of something, and I asked you, you know, did you actually know that or did you read it somewhere? That would be me effectively showing admiration mm -hmm. for quick thinking and um and a, a yeah. good use of, of kind of psych psychological manipulation, mm -hmm. not an accusation of lying. <laughs> so yes, I think but... Rilak Rilak went went the wrong way, wrong went to the wrong place on that one. Yeah, which didn't help with uh, what Burnham and or myself thought about her, because you know, I still don't like her at this uh, this point of the episode. No, maybe not, but that particular scene where she effectively talked Nalas down by relating to him, I don't care how she did it. No. She did Who it cares? and it worked. She did it. So that's yes. that's admirable. Well played. Yeah. Well played. Absolutely. Yeah. Pat on the back and move on to the next mission. <laughs> right. And still don't like it. No. <laughs> I said many times that you don't have to like the people you work with. No, I suppose not. It helps, but you don't have to. No. 
Unless it's toxic. Unless, yes. Yeah. Relax notes Bernard wants to know if she lied to him and asks, does it matter? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Burnham and the station crew arrive safely back on Discovery, but the return trip for the remaining three crew could take longer than the shields were expected to last. Yes, especially since it's not supposed to be able to go back. (laughs) Yeah. Relax suggests leaving them, questioning whether Burnham's claim that they have beaten the odds before mean they will again. Burnham directly asks if Rilak is relieving her of duty, but Rilak relents. Yeah. And that's twice that Burnham has directly confronted Rilak in public over her authority on this ship. It's almost like now Burnham is trying to pick a fight with Rilak. They are, they are absolutely not destined to be in the same place at the same time. No. I agree. I agree with that. Which, which in this scenario is dangerous because as captain Burnham has to think quickly and the decisions she makes, she knows she has to deal, has to live with. So having basically a a devil on her shoulder, questioning everything she's doing is dangerous. That's probably what she referred to when she said that if the president was on board, it would uh, um, put the crew in danger because it's the president, you know, you can just, you can't just, Tell her to go back to her quarters or sit quietly. So mm. you you need to deal with that on top of dealing with everything else. Yeah, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nah. Chuck her in the brig. Yes. Shoot her in the foot or something. Meanwhile, on Quajon, Booker pilots his ship into the upper atmosphere to investigate the strange bird activity. He encounters a flock falling from the sky and tells Kaheem to get Leto someplace safe quickly. Emerging into space, Booker is stunned to see a massive gravitational distortion obliterate Quajon's moon. Impacting debris sends Booker flying. Yeah. Reminded me a bit of the scene out of generations when the nexus ribbon came down and and destroyed Maybe. um um one of the viridian planets on which one mm-hmm. yeah those were falling that was weird mm. very it was really weird so we are we are now on to act four the final act of this episode on deep space repair beta six Nellas says he plans to head home as soon as the crisis is over and asks Tilly and Tal about their future plans. But Tilly says she does not know. Just then, the shuttle arrives and they board, departing just moments before a huge chunk of methane destroys that part of the station. Like, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. yeah so, so for a vessel that is not supposed to come back. I mean, I can understand that Tal reprograms it to come back. It's just navigation. You can switch that, you know, the other way around, teach the vessel to come back. But it had clumps that were able to clump it back to the uh, space dock. One. Two, it had a computer program that says, vessel is arriving. Right. So, <laughs> what? 
heck. Is it supposed to come back or not? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you, you mentioned about it coming back. Yes, you could turn it round and, and yeah. blast it back uh, in the direction I'm, it came from. I'm okay from. with that. No, I'm not. You're not? Okay. Because at the moment it approached the clamps, it would have had to have turned and then True. reversed in. So True. it must have had um, thrusters. Uh, four thrusters yeah. in order to propel it backwards. Mm-hmm. So that's True. three things. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you mentioned about the, the announcement, Shuttlecraft has arrived. But yeah. given that there was no announcement of its departure, <laughs> why would Adira have programmed in a prompt that couldn't have existed previously? Why would there even have been a speech synthesizer in that particular seg- section? Don't know. <laughs> the escape vessel arrives, impossibly, in the shuttle bay, and Discovery jumps away a split second too late to avoid a collision with an enormous chunk of the station. Dr. Hugh Culber and medical personnel rush to the badly damaged shuttle bay. Tilly and Tal are alive, but Nalas was killed. Culber, Tilly and Tal are left to survey the destruction, stunned. Yeah. Sad. It's a bit of a miracle that, that Tilly and Tal survived, because that sure. was that was a mess. Yeah, uh, uh, but they are the heroes, so... Yeah, no, exactly. Then he says, maybe it was a regular shuttlecraft, but was only enabled for one way until Tal, Tal reprogrammed it. Yeah, I get that. Not it's, it's the whole... It's the whole... The vessel is able to come back to the station and then there's the voice synth- synthesizer and the announcement and things like that. That doesn't make any sense for a one-way craft. And the clamps as well. Yes. But why why wouldn't they have just made it a secondary shuttle bay? Yeah. A, a, sorry, a secondary shuttle shuttlecraft rather than yeah. just... That fly is annoying. Rather than just yeah. a... Um, just an escape pod mm-hmm. by crippling a fully functional, sorry, um, <laughs> um, piece of equipment to only make mm-hmm. it do half its job. I don't know. I don't know. don't know. Later, Rilak arrives in Burnham's ready room. Burnham reports that three died and four were wounded. But Rilak points out nine station crews survived. Rilak brings up the Kobayashi Maru test given to cadets to test their reaction to no-win scenarios. Rilak says the lesson is that there are things beyond the captain's control and that they must accept that. But Burnham reveals she feels a need to keep everyone alive. Burnham then realises that Rilak came onto this mission to study her. Rilak reveals next-generation spore drive technology called a pathway drive is nearly ready for testing aboard the USS Voyager J, and she's considering a shortlist for the captaincy. Burnham and Rilak are at loggerheads about the burden of command. Burnham insists her experiences have prepared her for any kind of captaincy, although she says she would have turned down the position even if she'd been offered it. 
Relax says that Burnham has a pathological need to protect everyone, which would could lead to the sort of pyrrhic victories that the Kobayashi Maru test is meant to teach to avoid. Well, I think she's right. She's spot on. Yeah. She really is. Obviously, Burnham's taken it badly because she's taken it as a slight against her own abilities and her own captaincy. But if you look at it from a a, a more holistic perspective... The Kobayashi Maru, it is it is a training course of acceptance rather than capability. Yeah, unless you cheat. Ha- <laughs> and and well, I'll get onto that bit in a minute. <laughs> um, because uh, Relax said earlier on, she suggested that they leave, yes. which would have meant leaving Tilly and Tal and Nalas behind. But there's no way, no way at all, that Burnham would have accepted that as a possible solution for two reasons. One, because of who she is. And two, and this is the worst thing, because she's made a mistake here, they're her friends. Yes. Yeah. And that has clouded her uh, judgment. Absolutely. But I suppose that happens when when you rise up through the ranks. Well, from the, from the brig through the ranks, um, and you, you're kind of working with these people on a um, on a on a peer level, yeah. And then suddenly you're their you're their boss, yes. and you can do nothing but still consider them as your your shipmates, but you can't. Which is why you in in real life she would probably have been assigned to another ship, mm. um, you know, maybe the Voyager, and they would. Have- well, not in this case, because she, she wouldn't have got it. But yes, yeah. point well taken. Now, I did wonder why they made no mention of Kirk. Because his his case is obviously incredibly key to the evolution of the Kobayashi Maru test. But then I realised that the Discovery don't know Kirk. No, but the President does. But the pres- exactly, the President would have known it would have been in history. It would have been part of Federation history. So she could have said there was a, um, a Starfleet captain back in the 23rd century who did manage to do it by cheating, blah, 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 blah. But yeah. it wasn't mentioned. I'm, I'm, I was surprised. I was, first of all, I was surprised it wasn't. Yeah. Sorry. First, I realized why it wasn't, and then I was surprised because it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Could have been a nice touch, but... Arch is more important. <laughs> Rilak and Burnham's conversation is interrupted when Booker arrives aboard his damaged ship via autopilot. Booker reports that he saw a distortion similar to the one that damaged Beta 6, but the crew is perplexed as Quajon is light years away. Awashikam reports that she cannot find Quajon at its coordinates. A broader scan finds something hundreds of thousands of kilometres away. The view screen fills with an image that shocks and horrifies the crew. Quajon, completely destroyed. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, uh, when did the flux went from Doctor Wu's universe to Star Trek? Now, that's that, yeah. Um, that was the, the the flux came into my mind a few times, as yeah. did the Nexus um, yeah. from mm-hmm. from generations. 
Well, if it's but, something like that, it's probably more the Nexus than the Flux. But. Right. But also, it reminded me of a line from The Undiscovered Country. That was the one where um, Praxis blew up. Mm-hmm. The the um, Klingon mining planet. And I can't remember who said it. it was one of the one of the enterprise one of the enterprise bridge crew said I can confirm the location of Praxis. I cannot confirm the existence of practice Praxis. <laughs> yes. And it this, that, that reminded me of that, which I thought was quite yeah. uh, quite funny. Yeah. And that ends on on that and that leaves us a cliffhanger. And uh, Yes. Ooh. Yes, what a cliffhanger. That was uh, that's a big one to start with. Indeed. And there again, and, uh, Discovery has always been one long story arc, hasn't it? Yes. Yes. And I have a feeling this is going to be a 10 is it 10 episode this season? Uh, 10 episodes yes, this season, yeah. 10 episode. 13 this season. 13? Uh, yeah. I have a feeling it's going to be oh, a 13 sorry. episode Discovery is long. Discovery is 13, it's Picard that's 10. Yeah. And he says, maybe it's the same thing. The flux is the nexus, different name in a different time. Yes. Probably. Potentially. It does look different. It does. But it has um, the same however, global it's effect. However, quite a few years later. So, yeah. well, there again, it, nexus is timeless, isn't it? So, I don't know. Mm, yeah. Mm. But maybe they, they just did a huge crossover between many universes. Hmm. We know that there has been a comic book that mixed the the Borgs and the Cybermen, and uh, when Doctor Who gets into Starfleet's universe, well, Star Trek's universe, and meets, I think it's Picard, something like that. Did okay. you remember when I, I showed you that on on the on one of the comics books? Well, you can look look at that online. There is I one don't. one series, mini series of Doctor Who a crossover between Doctor Who and Star Trek. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'll have, I'll have to check that one out again. But it it was not on TV; it was just on. Uh, no. Right, so that uh, brings us to the end of episode one Indeed. of the current season of Discovery. Uh, Yannick, talk to us. Well, I thought it was a, a good episode. I liked the end of it a lot more than the rest of it. Um, as we said when we started the, this uh, recording, it has its great moments. It also has his, uh, its um, less good moments. Let's not come back on the returning shuttle uh, to the the spinning station. So those are two things that we shall never talk about never again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a bit slow at the beginning, but uh, I also was very happy, as I said earlier, to watch an episode of Star Trek I didn't know anything about. So the whole experience was that I was very, very happy uh, with the episode. It's not, it's not bad. It's far from being bad. Um, but it brings lots of questions. I didn't know really where the president was standing uh, in in this. I still don't know, as you said earlier, I still don't know if I like her or not, even though I agree with her on 
some of the the points, and I absolutely agree with her that um, uh, Burnham has a hero complex, as Lainey said earlier. Yeah. So, and then this uh, fantastic cliffhanger at the end. Uh, is it really destroyed? Where's Leto and uh, and um, uh, I forgot his, uh, his his name? Um, where are they? Are, are they safe? Did they did they run away? We don't know. And I eager to watch tomorrow's episode. Yeah, indeed. I, I personally, I think it's too early. Uh, to make too much of a call on on where we're going, there, there's yeah. so much that could happen. Um, the the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. I'll be honest, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect anything no. of that of that magnitude because that that is huge. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, you know, ha- having a someone's home world destroyed is is huge. I suppose we should have seen it coming, considering whenever whenever things tend to re- refer to family. Because we saw it in in um, again in generations. I keep bringing things back to generations. That whenever something occurs around family, something normally bad happens to the family. Yeah, yeah. Because you build it up and then knock it down. That's kind of how how these uh, these emotional scenes work. But I had no no idea that that it would have been you know the destruction of of Booker's homeworld. Yes. So that's but that's I think, huge. That's huge. Yeah, it is. But I think in general, yeah, it was a good episode. Certainly not the best one we've seen. Certainly not the worst one we've seen. No. A really good, solid start to the season. Yeah. Let's wait and see what happens. Absolutely. Let's yeah. give it a chance to impress us. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. don't now, know if Lenny has f- anything to tell us, but Lenny, if you have something to say, write it down. Write it now on, in the chat. So that we can read it before the end of the recording. Yeah. So while we're waiting for that, I did have a quick look to see if there's much trivia, and unsurprisingly, there isn't, uh, oh, wow. because obviously this is a, a brand new episode. It's only been yeah. out for um, for six days. Uh, the review was was absolutely brilliant. It really was. Um, there were a few things missing from it, but you you kind of expect that for a a live um uh just in time mm-hmm. review having been written so can't really complain about that no and it helps that we are reviewing those episodes uh, six days after they are aired so it would be a lot harder if we were reviewing them like the the, the day after or something yes yeah. yes but then he says awesome episode good potential for the rest of the season right that sounds it Sums it up. Very good summary. Well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yes. So there are a couple of items that have been highlighted uh, in Memory Alpha for the episode. Some things that we were aware of, other things we may not have done. Um, this episode was released at the same time as the Prodigy episode Terra Firma. Yes. Uh, first time that two episodes were released simultaneously uh, since two years prior when two short tracks released on the same day mm-hmm. Terra um, Firma is uh, a very very good episode I have to admit I haven't haven't even started on, on Prodigy yet I, we do need to we've still got the other one that we don't mention on here 
um, a few episodes of that to watch yet. Yeah, Prodigy um, is really good. But it's also the first time that two episodes of two separate Star Trek series have been released in the same time since 1999. Wow. When a DS9 and a, and a Voyager episode were released on the same day. Uh, we already know about um, what Paramount did, so I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> um, I, I missed this. When they unveiled the Archer space dock, a version of Archer's theme was playing. Ah, I missed it too. No, I completely missed it, yeah. So it is uh, Jonathan Archer. It has to be, yes, absolutely. It's good to have that um, kind of confirmed. Uh, most of the Discovery crew appear to have been promoted. Um, Stamitson and Culber are a commander. Mm -hmm. uh, Reese, Detmer, Awashikan, Nilsson and Bryce are lieutenant commander and Tilly to lieutenant Reese also appeared to act as Burnham's number one, um, which we saw when he when she passed the um, passed the bridge to him. Yes, when she went out to do her uh, worker bee thing. Yeah, good and to I, see I them evolve. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, did you see the triple? Because I didn't. No, I didn't. Nope, there was a triple um, when Burnham and Booker were walking through uh, one of the corridors probably towards the beginning of the episode when they had um when yeah. uh, I, I think it might have been around about the time that burnham was about to go into um the starfleet academy yes. presentation launch thing uh -huh. there was a, um, a triple mention there laney's just said she saw it okay but uh, no yeah, i got missed it. i'm gonna have to back. go back and watch that now uh -huh. just to see just to see the triple um and there was a Lurian on <clears throat> Deep Space Repair Beta 6. Um, Morn is a Lurian, I believe. Yeah. Um, but it's the first first member of that species in Starfleet. Indeed. But 900 years passed since... Well, little less than that since Deep Space So the, the first member we have seen yeah. <laughs> in Starfleet. The question is, does this one speaks on screen. Because we know more and he's a chatter. But we've but never we've seen it. Never seen him speak. Yeah, all, all the anecdotes and references suggest that he could talk the hind legs off a donkey. Um, <laughs> but we we've never heard Morn utter a single word. No. Mm. Burnham um, had to like said, the bridge because Chidi was on the station. So that is true. However, uh, yeah. Tilly's rank was is below. Yeah. Yeah. It, so there uh, one, two, three, four, five, five lieutenant commanders. Mm. So I don't think Although, she would have been number one. No, she wouldn't have been. But interesting that Stamets and Culber, so your scientist and your, your doctor, are both commanders, but there are no commanders on the bridge. Mm. True. Which I, I find interesting. So I wonder who is genuinely second in command. Because in theory, if if it came to it, Stamets and Culber would have um Bridge authority. Uh, privileges, yes. Privilege, yeah. Bridge They're not bridge crew necessarily, but they are certainly senior crew. So Donna. Donna either. We'll see. Nope. Okay, um I think that's it really then. So unless you've got anything else 
uh, to mention on this episode. Nope. Then we shall end our review of Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 1, Kobayashi Maru. So thanks to all of you for listening to our show. You can help us spread the love for this podcast by stitching a post-it note on the wings of thousands of butterflies and sending them on their merry way throughout the galaxy to let each and every sentient life form out there know that we exist. Or, if you think that might get you into trouble with the intergalactic equivalent of the RSPCA, you can simply share the address of our website on social media. Yeah, that would be a lot easier. <laughs> our website yes. is at trgreyhut.org, where you can find our show notes, our reviews, and leave a comment for every episode in the commenty, boxy, thingy below the, the show notes. Yes, that. Indeed. Uh, we are on Twitter and Facebook. Our username for both of those is TGH Podcast. We're also on Telegram at t.me slash TGH Podcast. And we stream the live recording of these episodes on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash, yep, you guessed it, TGH Podcast. Yes, consistency is key. <laughs> Thanks to Memory Alpha, as always, and even more than always, for quickly. Mm. Uh, producing and sharing the uh, review of this episode. We have uh, based our own review on uh, their work and that is released under a Creative Commons by Attribution non-commercial license. Not commercial? Indeed. Not commercial license. Non-commercial. <laughs> yeah, we, we do, I don't think we sing Memory Alpha's play praises quite enough because when you think about the amount of work they put into yeah. it, their fandom site is by far the best and most um, comprehensive, yeah, comprehensive site creative. I've ever seen. I go yeah. to fandom for other other um, fan sites, and they're awful by comparison. Memory Alpha, you are awesome. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, it goes, the, you know, it, it, it relates to the number of contributors, I guess. I would imagine so, yes. And, of course, Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. And the rest of this show is released under a Creative Commons by attribution share-alike license. You can see our website for more details of what that means. Yes, if you can find it, because probably still not there. <laughs> if you can't find it, tell us. Yes. This podcast is part of the Other Side Podcast Network. Check out our website at otherside.network for all our shows and our hosts. Our next episode will be our review of The Anomaly, the second episode of the fourth season of Star Trek Discovery. Yes, and not the first season, as it says in the... Not the first season, in the no. Fire. Yes. Um, before you go into the uh, the final bit, I think uh -huh. we should, because we haven't done for a while, because we've not been here for a while, um, give a shout-out for Maestratio. Yes. Who is the composer of our theme tune, uh, which we have had since day one. And we love it, and we love you, yeah. so thank you so much. Thank you, Maestratio. That that's that was great. That is still a great tune, mm. and uh, I have it on my phone as a, it's my ringtone. It's yeah. for, for people I don't know. That is my ringtone. Yes. Well, that brings us to the end of this uh, episode, the first uh, review of uh, season four of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Thank you, Dave, for coming back after this long uh, hiatus that we ha we had. Um, I've missed you, buddy. I really have. Yeah. It's, it's good to be back. Me too. But there, there were you know, stuff, you know, life get, get, uh, got on the way. And, uh, well, sometimes we have to say, well, we're not going to do that for a while and we're going to come back. And 
There we are. We are back and we are reviewing we are live Star Trek series. Well, live, um, current Star Trek series. Current, yes. And Lainey is going to score 48.79. Well done, Lainey. If you want, uh, nice. you also want to drop parachutes while we record <laughs> this episode, you can join us. As we said, twitch.tv slash TGH podcast and you can play with us. And now Dave is playing and there's a parachute dropping. So while this parachute is dropping, we will sign off. Thank you very much for listening, watching, and everything else. We will be back next week with a whole lot more of Star Trek Discovery. In the meantime, don't let your guard down. Wear your masks. Go get your third chat and take care of yourselves. Ciao, ciao. See ya. Just listening to a member of the Other Side Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at otherside.network. <laughs>